You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week on the season seven finale of the OBS. It's another double play from Oliver's trip to Santa Fe. He goes inside the huddle with Ryan Speedo Green to talk about the bass baritone's debut at the festival on the heels of recovering from COVID. And Oliver also gets mezzo-soprano Isabel Leonard to take a few free throws in our brand new short form segment. And then... The OBS team hit the ups and downs of season seven plus two minute drill live performances back, but audiences have been slow to return. So says the old gray lady, the New York Times. We're going to crunch the numbers on that. (laughs) Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Stitcher, Spotify. You click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you just hit the plus sign. It's that easy. You don't want to miss what we are talking about. Another way to... Be part of the team is send us a voice memo, get your voice heard, or even just email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You do that, and I am going to send you an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. I might give you two just for sharing your own hot take. Season finale energy going right now, you know? It is. It is. Weston, are you feeling it? Oh, I am. And it's really finales all around. I just want to steal uh, Oliver's sports talk real quick because this is, according to her, Serena Williams' last tennis match ever happening right now at the U.S. Open. That's why Oliver's not on the show because he is glued to the TV and biting his fingernails (laughs) and hoping it goes out on a high note. Um, And, uh, you know, but that's just how it goes. You know, season finale, baby. You know, sometimes some good things have to come to an end. It's possibly her last match ever. This is her last tournament. So she's starting her last tournament ever. If she loses, then (laughs) it's her last match. If she wins, she keeps going. (laughs) Which is why Oliver is going to be glued to the TV every (laughs) single match. (laughs) Ashley, you really, really hate Tom Brady. I really do. But like, I just think everybody else should. First of all, A, he's too handsome for his own good. No one should look that way. Second of all, he cheats. We know this. Third of all, this has come out recently uh, because, you know, there's all of this like hullabaloo about the student loan forgiveness, uh, you know, thing. And there's a bunch of folks that are bellyaching about it. But what I love is that Twitter is coming after all of the celebrities and the wealthy who (laughs) had pandemic uh, PPP loans that have been forgiven. And it turns out that Tom Brady had basically a $960,000 loan from the PPP program that was given to Brady's TB12 forgiven. Also, with part of the money, well, basically, he got a donation to his foundation through this loan, and then he bought a boat. So Mm. (laughs) 52% of the people that applied for that paycheck forgiveness didn't get it. Tom Brady got a boat, and then his loans were forgiven. So if you don't hate Tom Brady by now, I don't know what else to tell you. At some point, we Michigan fans are going to forget that he led us to the national championship in 1997. (laughs) That moment has not come yet. However, Michigan football right around the corner. College football begins on September 1st, so the day of the show release. Michigan opening up by hosting Colorado on September 3. I just 
love this time of year, the crispness of fall, college mm. football. What's not to like? Weston, I swear to God, if I hear you say Roll Tide, I'm going to punch a microphone. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. In 2016, the biography of Ryan Speedo Green entitled Sing for Your Life was published. It details the American bass baritone's remarkable journey from his rough childhood to the world's stages as an opera singer. A few years later, he was introduced to the world with his 60 Minutes profile, with Met and in HD performances soon to follow. Now, it's safe to say we are living in the high season of Speedo, with the bass baritone set to star in the next Terence Blanchard opera, Champion, in 2023. Oliver sat down with Speedo to talk about this next chapter of his life, as well as making his debut at Santa Fe Opera on the heels of recovering from COVID. But first, here is Speedo in Beethoven's Ninth, recorded last year with the Vienna Symphony. Santa Fe, and last night I saw The Barber of Seville, which so far has been the best thing I've seen this season. I know that I still have two more operas to go, but this Barber of Seville was actually hilarious. And yes, it's a funny opera, but there are lots of moments in Barber's where you're like, oh, okay, this probably was funny like 200 years ago, but it's not funny anymore. This show tries to cram in as many jokes as possible. And it really keeps you engaged. Even if you don't like the joke, at least you know that somebody's trying to go for a joke. So first of all, welcome Ryan Speedo Green. Should we just call you Speedo? Yes, call me Speedo. All my friends call me Speedo. (laughs) Okay. Um, So we met when you made your recital debut uh, at Ravinia with Adam Nielsen. Mm -hmm. And that was around the time when your book had come out. It was sort of like a recital tour, book tour at the same time. And, uh, you know, the... 60 Minutes thing came out. We're going to talk about that. But for now, let's just talk a little bit about Santa Fe. So I was lucky to catch your actual house debut, yes. which was which was delayed. Why was it delayed? It was delayed because I had my second bout with COVID here in Santa oh. Fe. Man, that must really suck. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the irony is like I, I would have had my debut in December for a gala uh, last December for Santa Fe, but the, I landed in Santa Fe. And after spending four months in New York, uh, doing like 35 performances, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and the second day I arrived in Santa Fe, I, I I contracted COVID, and so I was on quarantine for 10 days. So I missed my debut, and then I 
was excited for coming here to do uh, um, starting performances in the second run of um, Barbara Seville here and then this pr amazing production. And I took my whole family this time and uh, we arrived uh, and in the 48 hours after I arrived, my son and my wife contracted COVID and then my mother-in-law the day after and then me two days later. So I ended up being in quarantine for like 15 days. Oh man! Well, we have to put a to put a pin in your wife and your son and your your, your mother-in-law or your mother. My mother-in-law, yeah, my mother-in-law, okay. so, yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. We will talk about that in a moment. But um, let's just get back to Don Basilio. Um, you are in this production. Oh, you have to remind me who the stage director is. I should have known this. Before. No, no, it, 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 it's it's a uh, uh, and I will actually rem I ended up working with the assistant stage manager and stage director okay. because I missed the original uh, uh, mounting of the production, okay. and so I didn't actually meet the the original director. So I okay. cannot. Yeah. Okay, but should we name this person? Should I yes, we should. We should. We okay, should. Let, let me look up the the because uh, I worked I worked with Greg Gregory, who was his assistant stage manager. Okay. So so I didn't actually meet the director face to face. I worked okay. with his well, assistant. Well, it's hilarious, and uh, it's sort of a mixture of uh, you know 18th century uh, attire. And um, there's iPhones, and there's yoga mats, <laughs> and there it's it's just sort of all over the place uh, genre or um, anachronistically in the era, but it totally works. So it's Stephen, Stephen Barlow. Okay, Stephen Barlow. So congratulations, Stephen Barlow. And you said the assistant was Greg. Gregory, yeah. So Gregory's the one who worked with me for for the for one day before I my entire family uh, contracted COVID. Okay. <laughs> so. And then shout out to uh, Nicholas Newton, who did two performances in your studio. Yes. Yes, yeah. he did. Yeah, and he, uh, he was amazing. I got to meet him. Uh, he did the uh, the performances in the beginning, and then he ended up uh, doing the two that I missed. And shouldn't we, you know, in this day and era, feel so fortunate that we have another black bass baritone uh, ready to go? This is and true. It wasn't like yeah, uh, and I know this maybe not even part of the concept for this show, but I'm so glad that um, he was available because he's also a great singer on top of being black, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's what I really, I mean, for me, what I really love looking at the Santa Fe uh, season and the rosters, how many singers represented both Asian American, African American, Hispanic uh, uh, American, and just, you know, the, first of all, the, the nationalities that are here. And I think that's exciting for me as a singer to come to a place like Santa Fe and still feel like I'm, this is a world, uh, like the world is here. Not yeah. only the opera world, but the actual world is here. Right. Well, so you're doing a comic role and... Um since you know your ascent uh, into you know this new level of um, notoriety as a, a singer uh, you used to do you used to sing Osmin do you still sing Osmin so so Osmin was my uh, uh, actually my last and final bass role so I I had a I had a stint where I was like man I have a low D I should show people yeah <laughs> and but uh, since then I've my voice has moved up and I'm I'm, uh, I'm actually like a bass baritone high bass baritone Okay, which yeah. means that you sing a lot of gloomy and angry kings. Yes, you know? uh, kings, bad guys. You know, I, I never get the girl, but maybe I'll be in the way of the tenor getting the girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 been a it's been actually pretty awesome. Uh, I started off with mostly comedy um, in the beginning of my career, and then um, as uh, I discovered my voice and and using you know my my stage presence not only to make people laugh and and smile but also to instill fear and 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 angst and uh uh you know the anti-heroic type of uh, personalities that i presented and also drunks apparently i'm really good at representing drunks even though i don't drink very yeah. very much 
<laughs> no, but I mean, like you are a very um, formidable stage presence. Yeah. But but in this um, Barbara Seville, you're sort of fey and silly. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's like it was really fun to see you be so. I don't know, loose and, uh, you know, just easy, easy on stage, you know, and I hilarious, you know. I will tell you, like, I mean, this this cast is top notch. And I've, I've, done, I've been, I've had the pleasure of doing Barber in a, in a bunch of different places, both in Europe and in America. And it, it's it's one of those shows that if you have the right cast, it's it's almost impossible not to make something funny happen. And, when, and I, I only got to rehearse with the cast once before uh, opening night tonight. And even... In our on our small rehearsal that I had, the the energy like everybody fed off me. I, ha I had things to add to the to the character that um, the person who sang it before me didn't, and yeah. and he had stuff that he put on him himself. So it was like it was yeah. a, almost a different performance, you know, uh, that yeah. I gave with the cast. Yeah, I don't know like how Nicholas did because I didn't see it, but just yeah. like when you're when you're wearing headphones, just like this little tilt you had in your <laughs> in your neck just to show that you're listening is just so. Just like little details like that are just so enjoyable. No, I even I even remember like when uh when um we were we were talking uh me and me and the 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 Bartolo, uh you know Kevin and Kevin Burdett who is ridiculous. I mean, I sort of like he's I first of all didn't know a human being could be a bass baritone slash baritone could be as flexible as he is both physically and vocally on stage. The things he does on stage are something you would see in a vaudeville act, and it's just like the and he's he's literally that comical in real life like mm. he, he he walked into a room and somehow you end up laughing yeah no it was it, it, i was cracking up and like i was literally guffawing and i think the people around me were like okay it was funny but it wasn't that funny <laughs> no <laughs> well, it was it was a good time it was a really good time and and i think for me with this kind of show you know uh you, you could do it so much at, at, at some point, especially like, you know, the, the, the people who sing these kind of roles sing them a lot because it is a very specific kind of voice and character to sing these roles. It can be, become a bit monotonous. And it's, it's, it does it's everything to do with the cast and the direction to bring the most out of these characters and the people singing them. And I think it's, it's a really uh, a testament to the director and the production and the, and the, and this, the, the whole uh, ensemble to bring this show together that it went so well. Like people told me this is like, I think it's like the sixth or seventh performance of it. And even then, like some of the people in the audience had seen it multiple times and they were still laughing. <laughs> and that shows you how great of a production this is. Well, we're here to talk about you, even though we, I could talk about this Barbara Steele some more. Um, like I said, we met when your book had just come out and you were singing a recital uh, with Adam Nielsen. And I think a lot of people saw this piece you did for 60 Minutes, yeah. where you were sort of introduced to the world and not a lot of opera singers get that opportunity to like have, you know, their story, you know, told. This was even before you were who you are now, you know? So I feel like a lot of people feel like they know you, uh, even though they haven't even heard you sing yet, you know? They just know you because of your story that's out there. And now, yeah, but go on, I'll let you comment and then we'll talk about like no, where I mean, you are it, now. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, again, I know how uh, great of an opportunity and how lucky I am to have something, something like that happen to me so early in my career. At the same time, it was a huge motivator for me because all the people who wrote to me telling me how much my story meant to them, especially educators, because, you know, as, as much as I'm an opera singer and my story is about how opera changed my life and affected me, my story is really about educators and how, how much educators from the, from the very beginning of child 
enters elementary school, which literally is my story, to the to the time they enter music school and they want to learn this art form that is 400 plus years old and they want to be a part of it and, and its grandioseness and its, you know, uh, its history and how it, it's special, the educate, how important educators are to transitioning children, teenagers and adults into being not only opera stars and opera fans, but just to be able to feel like they're welcome into this art form. And I think uh, it's been a huge motivator for me as a musician, as a man, as a, as a person whose story has been told in, in such a way to not let, you know, to work strive to, be, to, to live up to people's expectations and, and dreams of who I could become. And I feel so, 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 uh, gratified that so many people have been following my career since that 60 minutes uh, um, interview and the book and have been able to see me blossom from a, a young artist to now a full-fledged uh, soloist performer. You're the marquee star and you have uh, a production being mounted for you. I mean, I guess, I don't know, is Solomon Howard like on, the, uh, on another cast of that? No, no, so it, no, it's, it's, it's me and, and uh, uh, it's, it's only me. Um, okay. it's, and it's called Champion, and so the 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 show is going to be me and Eric Owens, one of my mentors. Okay. So and he's playing the old version. So I'm playing young Emil, and mm -hmm. and and Eric Owens is playing old Emil, and it's it's actually not only a story of a, a boxing story, but it's 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 a story about uh, accepting one's sexuality. Like this mm -hmm. is a this is a, a a man who, you know, I mean, I could talk to you hours about it, but the, the general basis of a man who uh, a, a boxer who killed a man in the ring, and the world forgave him. But the moment that he was found out that he was that he was gay, the world couldn't forgive him for being gay. So they forgave him for killing a man, but they forgive for they couldn't forgive him for loving a man. And and, it, and it's like an amazing story of of, of self acceptance, of forgiveness, uh, and you know of the American dream. And I think I'm I feel sort of sometimes looking at this character, you know, as an ally and as a person who literally is living in the epitome of the American dream, what America could be at its best, but also seeing America what it can be at its worst. And it, this is an amazing experience that I think everybody should see on the Met stage and in theaters, if you're near a theater. Yeah, well, it's going to be one of those HD broadcasts, so a lot of people will get to see it. And yeah. you know, we touched upon the 60 Minutes piece you did and the story you tell about, you know, Denise Graves and yes. being being in what a governor's school, I guess it yeah. was. And, and going to the opera and saying, oh, there's a black person there. <laughs> and yep. she's the, like the best person on stage, you know? And the irony so. is Denise in, in the original mounting of, 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 uh, of Champion, Denise played my mother uh, in, the sh in the show. And so the, in, in this version is going to be Latanya Moore, who's been both my sister on stage, yeah. my, my neighbor on stage, and now she's going to play my mother on stage. So I'm like, me, me and Latanya have, have an amazing chemistry. So you, you have to come see me and her on stage together. So is there a part two of the story of your relationship with Denise Graves now that we haven't heard like the update? Yeah, so one of the really cool moments of my career, something I'll never forget, you know, uh, after the, when the book is coming out, um, the book had come out already, um, that, that next season I was performing kind of my first, I was getting the opportunity to sing my first aria on the Met stage. I was singing Coline in La Boheme in the famous uh, Zeffirelli production. And I was singing, I think it was in November, December or something like this. And uh, the book had uh, had done its rounds and had become pretty popular. And so uh, at that at that time, my the Governor's School for the Arts, the high school that I went to in Virginia, took a special field trip with all thirty something kids from the from the uh, uh, vo the classic voice program up to New York to see me make my basically uh, uh, um, 
uh, bigger than a Copper Mario role debut at yeah. the Met, <laughs> you know, singing the code aria. And so they, they were going to meet, they're meeting me in the green room where I met Denise uh, for my first opera. And a lot of these kids, this is their first ever opera. And to see, you know, not only a, a face of color from their hometown, but see a person from their school who literally graduated from their school on the Met stage. And so I'm going backstage to meet my first group of government school kids, you know, uh, uh, um, in the green room. And I walk in and Lord behold, there's Denise Graves standing mm -hmm. amongst them. Like, and she, I had no idea that she was going to be there. And apparently someone told her that there was this book that had come out where the singer was talking about how like he, uh, uh, how he, she inspired him to become an opera singer. And so she's like, I have to come up and see this kid. And so she, she came up to see my big role debut at the Met and she was, she was, and she, she hugged me and kissed me. I was in tears. Oh I, 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 I couldn't believe, I was like, I mean, there are pictures. I, and I, somehow the Met made this happen and it was, in the next season, I got to actually sing with her on stage. She sang, she sang Mariah and Porgy and Bess, and I sang Jake. So I actually got to sing with her on stage and actually like to not only, you know, more than 15 years ago, have her be the, the catalyst of my love for opera, then in, have her see me in one of my biggest moments of my career, that then a year, a year later, be able to get, be able to sing with her on the Met stage in an opera. It was and one of the biggest, most important production at the Met, uh, that poor game best, it will, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, honestly, pinch me, you know, pinch me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she's, she set a high standard for um, stage presence and like physicality in her generation. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're being asked to do this boxing role. Um, do you have like, are you like drinking a lot of uh, green? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I will tell you like, uh, you know, Speak, speaking of like family and COVID, like COVID was, you know, hit everybody really hard, you know, financially, mentally, physically. And uh, when COVID happened, I lost a lot of work, like, like most singers. And I, uh, I, I didn't escape that. And, um, you know, I spent about six, seven months at home. And, uh, and, as, and I remember my, it, the first thing that hit me was kind of like depression. Like the fact that like I, as a, as a, my wife was six months pregnant with our second child, you know, uh, uh, she had to go on maternity, forced maternity leave because of COVID and the fears that pregnant women could be, you know, could uh, could face uh, extreme harm. And so basically, I have no job, you know, uh, um, at home with my, my 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 young child and my coming child. Uh, I had to pick myself up, and you know, she was my rock. And she told me if I, you know, if I can't be on stage singing, <clears throat> you know, you got to work on your voice and you got to work on your body and, and get yourself, get your, just start walking, take long walks. And so I, I ended up, you know, first I was walking like, you know, 4,000 steps and huffing and puffing and walking and, and coming home. And the next thing I know, like uh, after like two or three weeks of doing, I'm walking like 10,000 steps. I was like, man, it kind of feels good. And I'm, it feels like I'm airing out my, you know, letting go of my pain and my, and my sadness and kind of taking it, taking it out on these steps. And, and next thing I know, I'm walking like 20,000 steps. 25,000 steps and uh and I'm dropping weight just because I'm just being more active and and I felt more energetic to work on my voice find new find new avenues to perform I started you know doing a lot of stuff on zoom like other singers were doing and and getting involved with my community and I think uh in Austria where I, where I live at the moment and it was my, my my mind my body my voice everything changed that summer and I could have sat and 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 sort of like uh in my depression and and let that define me but I didn't and I'm happy that I had a support system uh um, you know my amazing wife and my and my kids and it was it was an awesome re realization of 
you know, I'm more than just my voice, you know, and it, yeah. it was awesome. Well, since you bring it up uh, and we promised to talk about it, you know, you are somebody, cause I, I, I'm your friends on social media and I just see how often you are grateful for family um, and you have young children and your career is exploding right now. Um, how do you do it? What is your support system? Who is helping you and your wife? Uh, how does it inform what jobs you take? Just let it, let's talk about it so that people who might fall in your footsteps, follow in your footsteps might have a strategy. Yeah, I think it's so, um, one of the, so what's so important in this field is to realize no matter how amazing of a singer or a person you are, you, you, it takes more than you to, to make, to create something. It takes a village, you know, and, and my story is, is, is a story of a village and, and family is not necessarily your blood. It's, it's more than that. And for me, the people that I hold dearest and closest to me are not necessarily blood related to me. Um, from my fourth grade elementary school teacher, uh, Mrs. Hughes, to my uh, to the head of uh, um, the government school for the arts when I was there, who I call my pops. He's he's one, he's the closest thing I had to a father. His name is Leon Hughes, the husband of Betty Hughes, the, my fourth grade elementary school teacher. These are two of my adopted parents, and they've been with they've been with me since I was eight years old. Even now at 30, 36, going on 37, they still call me every week to make sure that I'm like eating right and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm getting some sleep and I'm and I'm behaving uh, you know behaving and doing my homework <laughs> you know that they still check on me and you know I was I've been lucky enough uh, even blessed enough that throughout my life I've run into people who become my family from Robert Brown the the my first voice teacher who taught me how to sing and taught me the love of opera and the essentials, who told first person to tell me that I would ever sing at the Met. And he never got to see me sing at the Met. But, you know, to this day, uh, every success I have on stage, I look up and I know that I know that he was a part of it. And, you know, even now, my family, you know, I think it's important that every singer has an inner circle, you know, and, and an inner circle is a can be different with everybody. My inner circle is 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 consisting of educators and people whose word means more to me than any review or or, or any coach because you know there are people who have to know you not only at your voice but you as a person, you know. And of course, you hope your manager or your <laughs> is part of that inner circle because they should be you know the, one of the closest people you talk to. And my manager is is one of them, you know. Uh, and it's important that you find people in your life that are not just music and my wife who had never her name is Irene or Irena if you're if you're German uh, um, who had never seen an opera in her life when I met her she, she had nothing to do with my field and it was actually a saving grace that she didn't <laughs> because there's only enough room for one diva in my relationship and that's me <laughs> and, and she's the most down-to-earth grounding human being on the planet and when i come home i'm not ryan speedo green the opera singer i'm ryan speedo green the dad and she hands me the baby and says change the diaper and i get to work and you don't know how grounding that is as a musician to come home to that well i want to get into some of the nitty-gritty uh because i and you don't have to name names but i just mm -hmm. want you to maybe describe some experiences where um, a job or a company has been really great in understanding the needs of a young parent, or on the contrary, um, on the other hand, like a, a company or a, a gig that was like, wow, I can't ever do that gig again because they were just not accommodating at all. That was like a mess and a logistical <laughs> nightmare, you know? 
Yeah, I, mean, I will tell you, like, um, things in Europe are different than things in America. Like, I, I, as much as, uh, I mean, I live in Europe. I live in Vienna, Austria. I sing with the Wiener Staatsoper for five seasons, sing up 42 roles there, hundreds, hundreds of performances. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And I, I'll, it, it literally changed the trajectory of my career as much as many things did in the past. But at the same time, I realized as I'm living in Europe, how um, amazing the American uh, operatic system is. They, there is a, there's a, a, a comfort coming to the US knowing that you know, they'll accommodate for my family. Like I, I just recently did a production of my, my first big production of Carmen with uh, WNO, Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center. And I, can, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I came, went there with my wife and my two kids and my mother-in-law. And they're kind of like, you know, we're traveling uh, 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 a group and they were so accommodating to certain, you know, certain things that had to happen at home. Like if one of my kids was sick, or, you know, if I needed to come a little uh, uh, later or earlier, or if I need to change rehearsal because, uh, you know, I need to make sure that my kids get this appointment because these appointments can only happen in America at this certain time, you know, they were so accommodating. And, you know, I, I, I'm not used to that, you know, in Europe, you, you show up or you don't show up. And even now I'm here in Santa Fe, um, you know, performing here in one of the most beautiful summer festivals of all time. It's, it's so stunning. And the fact that like, the, you know, they, they provide housing for families. The fact that beautiful, I actually, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful housing, <laughs> you know, and, and the fact that I get to perform, you know, for some people perform for two and a half months, you know, three months, and you get to literally have your kids and your family. There's, there's nothing more rewarding than coming home from work and being able to hug and kiss your, your family, you know, and, and to and, eat food from a kitchen. Yes, from a restaurant. yes, yeah. yes. Well, if your family can cook, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky my wife can cook, but I don't I, and I can cook too. But some some families, I mean, they have to go out every night. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think it might have anything to do with Francesca Zambella? I don't know her. But the fact that she's in leadership uh, at Washington, and like, maybe there's just like, it's like, I, I talk about this all the time. Like, maybe we need more women in the um, administrations uh, lead, leading these companies who understand that like, you know, if you want to have the really good singers, the really good singers, they have families because, you know, they understand what's important, what's in life, you know, and you get that round, complete artist because of their families. And I will tell on. you like the stability is different with everyone. I know some singers who do not need a partner to, to feel complete. And they, and they like, they have these like um, ridiculous, amazing careers with, with, living out of their suitcase basically and and it's absolutely possible every singer is different me i'm a i am i'm the kind of person like i thought when i married when i married my wife you know like oh man she's you know she's gonna need me and i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna like you know i can't go too far because she'll miss me too much because she's not a you know i'm not an opera singer you know she doesn't understand this lifestyle and the moment i uh i started traveling i realized that i'm the one missing her like she's 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 perfectly fine. She's like, oh, oh, you're coming back in a month. Okay, I'll see you in a month. And I'm like, baby, no, I'm gonna miss you so much. It's been like six hours, and, and like I, I literally, I married the perfect woman for me. And and I think uh, for me, that's that's what I needed: someone strong and 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 stable. And uh, she's literally a pillar of of protection for me um, from the world. And uh, it's the irony is like you know this 270 pound six and four black guy who's like being protected by this you know much much smaller petite <laughs> woman so it, it's it's uh, I I'm literally a, a softie and, and and that I'm glad I have her and and the thing is like 
you know, Francesca, she, she has a wife and a, and a kid and she understands she's a parent. And, you know, as much as opera is an elitist, it is an elitist art form that has hundreds of years behind it, hundreds of years of history of pain, blood, sweat, and tears. You know, it is also a, a field of emotions. Like we, we put our emotions on that stage. We give pieces of ourselves to the audience. Every, if, if we're doing our job right, we're giving pieces of ourselves every night, whether it be in a comedy or, or in a drama. And I, when you do that, when you put yourself out like that, you, you need to have something or people supporting you, not only on the stage, but off the stage, you know? And I think that's why it's important uh, as administrators here, you know, David Lomelli with his wife and kids, you know, uh, 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 the Henry Pickett, like, you know, like all the people involved here at Santa Fe, Francesca Zambella, you know, the people at the Met, you know, it's, it's so important to have people on your staff and your administration who understand family and stability. Well, we know that we we can hear you uh, in Champion uh, next spring. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else that we can look forward to before before Champion? I know yes. Gonna finish up this Basilio run. Yeah, so I'm finishing up the Basilio run, and then after that, I'm heading to Europe for for a couple. For uh, I'm closing the BBC Proms, uh, doing the B9, and then I'm going to Peoria, uh, Illinois, to do a B9 there, and then I'm going to be spending about two and a half months at WNO. Uh, uh, performing in a new production of Electra um, as a rest, and then also singing simultaneously singing uh, Fernando and Il Trovatore. So you, you, if you come there to, to see me in one of those shows at Washington National Opera, you can just stay an extra night and see me in, in the next one the yeah. next night. <laughs> will, will this be your first arrest? Uh, this will be my first arrest, yes. I, oh, wow. I, I, I love it. And, uh, um, and then after that, I'll be making uh, my role debut singing Curvenal. And, uh, and Tristan with uh, L.A. Phil and Dudamel, and then going to the Bastille in Paris to do uh, a production of Tristan uh, as Corvinal again with Dudamel conducting. And after that, I will be doing uh, the Mazorsky Songs and Dances of Death with the Met Orchestra at Carnegie Hall. And after that, I'll also, that same month, I'll be doing a commissioned piece uh, with the New York Phil um, for Black History Month. And then after that will be the big, my first lead role, first title role of my career will be at the Metropolitan Opera singing uh, Young Emile in Champion. This uh, commission with the New York Phil, who's the composer? So the 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 composer, the, you know, ask me all these questions. I, I, um, yeah. it, it's, <laughs> it's still not... in the works, it's still in the works. Okay. But uh, um, I'm uh, Courtney Bryan is the composer. Okay. Um, and uh, the libretto, Tazel Thompson is going to be doing the libretto. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. cool. And it's basically going to be a piece, uh, um, the, I'm going to be, I'm going to come, I'm going to be going to uh, Philly to be, because I think she's a resident at uh, a, a resident uh, composer um, with the Philadelphia uh, Symphony. Is it Philadelphia Symphony? Yes, Philadelphia, Philadelphia Orchestra. Philadelphia, sorry, Philadelphia Orchestra. I apologize. Yeah, yeah Philadelphia Orchestra. She's a resident uh, composer. So um, I'm going to be going up with, to there in November uh, to be working with her, like, like just vocally and looking at some text, but she's going to, the thematic, it's, the, it's basically centerpiecing, it's a centerpiece for the thematic focus of the season where they're explosion, exploring the notion of liberation and social justice. So uh, I'm not sure exactly what she, what, uh, um, libretto what 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 what, what tassel is going to use as inspiration like what mm -hmm. text he's going to be using but it's going to be performed with uh william grant Stills symphony number no. two um mm -hmm. and adolphus uh hell storks done made my vow so i'll um it's two orchestral pieces and i'll be the vocal piece in that in that program 
So we didn't talk about it, and maybe uh, th this is not a rich topic for you, but um, you know we're coming out of the pandemic, and you know there was this social uprising in the meantime, and uh, you know the Black Opera Alliance sort of gained steam, and just I feel like all the arts organizations are just taking a look at themselves and maybe being more intentional, even if it's performative, they're being more intentional. And I felt like during this time. I didn't hear from you. Like, and like, I'm not saying that you weren't out there saying stuff, but I feel like there were some artists that were very, very vocal. Um, is it because you're working in Austria and you've got your work and you've got your family, you don't need to contribute to that conversation or is that private for you? Or uh, are you just so grateful because of your path to where you are now that you don't wanna, you know, stir the pot, you know? I don't no, know. I mean, how to... I mean, I think this is a very, 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 very touchy subject. And I think everybody's, uh voice is, is heard differently. And maybe some people are, are vocal on social media, but they uh, maybe uh, th that voice, that social media is great to see, but the voices that maybe don't happen on social media that happen to the people that can actually make changes is maybe equally as important. And I think uh, um, for me, like I'm social, first of all, anybody who knows me knows how much inclusion and diversity is important to me. And when it doesn't happen, when I'm around and when I see that it's in, in being tested or being not, not being uh, implemented, I say something. And in any opera company or administrator that knows me personally knows how I always bring that up. And so for me, I don't need to, uh, you know, my social media is, is for my personal use and the purpose of me expressing when I want to say something happy and when I always say, when I say something that's upsetting or something that displeases me, you'll know as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, but for me, like uh, the, my operatic voice is done in person. I don't need to uh, put it on social media for people to hear me. Anybody who knows me and talks to me and has conversations with me, they hear these, they hear how I feel about things. So Good. if you if you if you have questions about me personally about how I feel about certain subject matters, yeah. you you ask me now. I'll tell you how I feel about them. No, no, I don't <laughs> need to. I just wanted to put that out there because yeah. I do think that there are people out there who are so angry about everything, yeah. and they're always calling out people. And there's like this purity test, and um, I can I can name an example. I won't of somebody who says, "Oh, well, that person has their job, so they don't need to, yeah, uh, you know, to stir the pot, you know, so they're fine and they're working within the patriarchal uh, system, you know, they they figured it out. So why would they?" you know, why would they call attention to injustices? But I think I it's also, important for every art. I think it's maybe I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think it's no, very no. important for every artist to express themselves the way they want to express themselves, but also know that social media, once you put it out there, you like, it's there forever. Even if you take yeah. it off, someone's probably taking a screenshot. So if you have something, per, if make things, I would be wary of making things personal and being yeah. more, me being, uh, 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 and also making generalizations because you never know what's happening behind the scenes. And, and for instance, I will, I will say, for an example, I posted something about uh, Terrence Blanchard and how amazing, I, uh, you know, how excited I was to be a part of his uh, second production at the Met, which is a big freaking deal for uh, uh, an African-American composer or even an American composer to have a, 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 an opera of theirs done a, the next year after their premiere, which, I mean, Nico Mooley didn't have that, you know, yeah. like, uh, you know, like, uh, it, it, like there, it's a huge deal. And not only that he's African-American, but he's American. This is an American composer before he's even African-American, he's American. And that to me matters. And so I posted this and uh, I had someone write a comment about how, like, you know, that, uh, he was, uh, uh, like an uncle Tom type of thing. Uh, um, and, and I was like, 
do you real first of all as this person who wrote this i had to write them and i was like do you actually know that there's another african-american poser having their opera perform next season never heard of this opera called malcolm x that's not <laughs> that's not composed <laughs> by terrence blanchard that's also being performed at at, at at the met next season and so i had you know before you go out there and put yourself yeah. on the chopping block because again as much as the internet is 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 and social media is supportive it'll also tear you down in the moment with people yeah. turning you in a second and it's important that you know before you put yourself out there to be embarrassed or have your career in jeopardy make sure you're rightfully informed and, and educated on the subject matter you're about to put out there yeah now there are people who just want to burn it all down and, yeah and it's uh, <sighs> I've had, I've had those moments too, yeah. trust me, but I also love it so much that I know that the, the work from the inside is very important. Yeah. And I've been educated so in so many ways on so many different uh, uh, um, experiences of people in the business through social media, things I would have never known, the, the, the gay experience, the bi experience, the Asian experience, you know, the white experience. I don't know these things. Only experiences I know are myself and, 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 and my, you know, my people's, like the only experiences that I know because that's the experiences that I'm living. And so I never pretend to understand someone else's experiences. And so I, I'm, 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 I love the fact that social media allows me a, 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 basically a window into the lives and experiences of others. And I, and I accept it and I let it soak in before I make a judgment. And I think that's also important. Like, you know, as much as we like to give, get, you know, uh, sorry, uh, uh, show people how we feel, it's also important to, to absorb other people's experiences. And I think that's something that maybe can be left, uh, can be forgotten. That needs to be also done, and I think as a as a musician, opera is the most open minded art form. It's been it's been the most accepting art form secretly for so long. You know where many composers and singers got to be their actual selves in the operatic world, you know behind doors uh, and on stage. But now it is with with the world being the way it is now, we are people allowed to be themselves everywhere. And I think we have to remember how opera should be held sacred and 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 cherished for what it was for so many people for so long. Well, I would love to leave um, this conversation with just remember recalling the young man you used to be uh, when you were in high school and when you were in governor's school. And can you name the, maybe an experience uh, or the type of experience that is so different than what you thought your life was going to be. I mean, I am just thinking about like singing Belshazzar's Feast or like singing Gurnaval, you know, these are things that are just so, would your mind be able even to comprehend if that was going to be something you could do? I will tell you, I will tell you my, if you, if you, if you talk to 14 year old Ryan Speedo Green, you know, mm -hmm. when I, after, after I saw my first opera at the Met, my first opera, literally was at the Met and I'm, and I'm, I'm leaving there after seeing Denise Grace perform the title of Carmen mm -hmm. on the Met stage, thinking like, this is, this is the greatest experience I've ever had outside of like, you know, like, like, like watching your first Disney movie or see, you know, see you know, that kind of like experience. And, and I literally thought this was like the, the Disney world of, 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 of opera, of, of, of performance. And I, I left the Met and I told my, my voice teacher, Robert Brown, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to sing at the Met. And I don't want to sing opera. I want to sing at the Metropolitan Opera because this to me was what opera was as a 14 as a or 15 year old pursuing this art form. And in my mind, I thought, you know, if someday I could graduate college, graduate grad school, do a young artist program, and then be able to audition 
for the Met chorus and sing on that stage and just be a part of a show on the Met, my life would be complete. I would have made it. And if the fact that, you know, <laughs> uh, literally, uh, I don't know, how many years is that? Nine years later, uh, um, I'm making my debut singing on the Met stage by myself in, a, in the Met competition with the Met Orchestra singing two arias I, at 24 years old. I, 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 there was no, I didn't think there was any more I could do. I, I thought that was the pinnacle. And, and to have my story be told, to have traveled the world, sung at some of the greatest opera houses in the world, met some of the stars that have idolized throughout my childhood and my adulthood and be able to perform with them on these stages. I'm just thankful every day that I get to wake up and I get to be a part of this history and this, and this grandeur and this field, which has cr created me as a man and created me as a father and created me, you know, as, as, as a musician. I'm so blessed and I'm so thankful. And thank you for having me. That was Ryan Speedo Green singing Mephistopheles' Golden Calf aria for Austin Opera last spring. Thanks again to the PR team at Santa Fe Opera for giving us access to Speedo. Speaking of Santa Fe, we have one more interview to share from this year's festival. Oliver interviewed Isabel Leonard for his other job, but got her permission to share these outtakes from their chat. Even though Isabel was starring in her second ever production of Carmen at Santa Fe, Oliver wanted to talk about a memorable production which came earlier in her career, Klaus Gutz's take on Cozy from the Salzburg Festival. We will link to the video in the show notes. Let's hear a bit of that performance from 2009. did this production of Cozy where you had to stand, I don't mm. know, tw 20 feet above the stage on, mm -hmm. I don't know how much of a platform you had, if it was like two feet up. I was terrified. Was like, yeah. I When I was watching, I was like, oh my God, I'm so nervous for you right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could do that again now. My, yeah. my, I like, I feel like I've developed a little bit of Virgo as I've gotten older. So, but yeah, yeah at the time it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was as scary as it looked. Yeah. <laughs> was what was the fail safe for you? Was there anything? Nope. Was there a soft ground? <laughs> no, there was no so, fail safe. I um I, the only thing I did was I I mean I was pretty 
I knew like what I, I mean, I'm kind of an ex dancer in the sense that like I, I studied dance for a really long time and I have a sense of my body and everything. So, you know, I, I won't put myself into situations that I don't feel like I could control. So in the motion, because, you know, things look pretty flat, especially that, that stage was so white and everything. And the videos are going to look quite flat. Like I never threw my body forward. Like, so the moment where it looks like I'm going forward, like I actually threw my body backwards, but I brought my arms forward. So it gave an impression, a little bit more of an impression. And I had asked them actually, because I would stand on this thing and I asked them to put double-sided sticky tape, like a thick thing of sticky tape right on the edge of it so that I could stick my, get my toes up there so that I could at least have like some traction. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy, crazy thing. You, you were like 25 or something like that when you did that. Yeah. I mean, it was my yeah. first Dorabella yeah. and I was, yeah, I was like, what, 26 or 27 or something. Yeah. I yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> you were saying yes to things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, the crazy thing about all of that is that I most likely offered it, mm-hmm. you know, knowing me, I most likely offered it. So, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, early in your career, when you were, when everybody was talking about like, this new mezzo, like, you were talking a lot about fitness and uh, I don't know if that is like still your brand or if that's like something that a publicist wants you to do, or I know that you're very fit, you know, but I don't know if that's something that like, you don't want people to talk about that anymore. It's like, that was. It's not so much like that. I don't want to people to talk about it anymore. It's just that I also know that there's like a, there for me, like, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, I, I just like watching people take advantage of things when they're just in fashion, you know? Mm-hmm. it's for me it's like it has to just be the um the honest thing that's happening in the moment right and and that particular time like I was extremely active of course physically in the beginning of my career because I was not a mom yet you know and yeah. I'd always come from dance and so it was always a big part of my stage craft and presence mm-hmm. um and then after my son was born you know I really I knew I had to get back to a certain level of fitness because it was the level of fitness that I had learned to sing from. Mm. So if my body was in a different place, I was going to be dealing with a completely different instrument essentially. And no matter, and even now, like my body is still not the same as it was obviously when I was like 28 pre my son, Mm -hmm. but as far as strength goes and the things that I know that I need for singing, you know, those are always things that I'm aware of, you know, and and active, you know, being active and being flexible physically and being able to do certain things. You know, like I always, I always say like, I'll program Ketubinos in until I really can't do them anymore. Like until my knees really give out Mm -hmm. because it's sort of like, if I say, Oh, I've got a Ketubino coming up in six months. I'm like, Oh, I gotta go to the gym. You know, gotta, gotta like practice getting up and down from the floor without being like, Oh, (laughs) you know, but you feel, you feel the passage of time. Like the, the Ketubino I did at the Met when we opened that particularly that new production in 2014, right? I created that one with Richard Eyre because he directed, that's the one, that's the one you were talking about. Yeah, the Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I had done it so many times by then that I really had a concept of like who he was and what I could and couldn't do. And Richard, I love Richard because he's such an, a positive enabler for acting. And so I, all of the staging essentially was like me being like, hey, can I run up that ladder? And then can I slide down it? And then like hide under the bed? And like, can we, you know, he was like, just do it. Just do, do whatever. And we'll just tell you. Yeah. So all of that stuff was me running around and like all of it. 
And then but your when, son was born by then, right? Oh yeah, he yeah, was yeah. four at that point. Okay. Yeah. Because and, yeah, so there was also a different level. Like I was, you know, I was more, you know, I was especially when he was four because it was like running around a toddler. Yeah, you know? that's exactly my point. I mean, I first of all, I just <laughs> want to tell you that I'm as gay as the day is long, so I, I can say this hopefully, and you'll feel safe. But uh, I was very confused watching <laughs> you. I had I had feelings like I've always thought you were a beautiful woman, but like so to see funny. you as such a handsome boy. I was like, this is very confusing that's for so me. Funny. I love that. But that's really fun though, actually, you know, because it's like, what? What's happening? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But like as far as like the passage of time goes, so when we did that one, when I did that one again recently, and I had done it, I think I had done it before, and we're in between 14 and now, although I can't remember. When I went to do it again now and I stepped in at the last minute in uh January, February, or whenever that was, uh of course I kind of remembered all of the staging and all of the things, right? But I remember like going, wow, I don't remember this space under the bed being so small, you know, or like, geez, the run around the stage was really far, you know, <laughs> like some of the things I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> I feel old, my knees are hurting. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but um, no, you are time. just as incredible as I thought you would be. Um, yeah. You're so like on so many levels, such an admirable artist and um I, uh, I just, I want to just tell you, thank you for your career and what you've been doing for opera. You are an incredible ambassador for what I love, you know, and when people go see opera and they see, it's like, oh, how come everybody can't be like her, you know? Oh, that's very nice of you. Yeah. You're Zerlina in Chicago. I forget when it was. Oh my God. Yeah. I was a yeah. baby. That was for me, it's like, holy shit we have somebody who actually like can be Azulina convincingly. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Well, she, I could tell you, she and Dorabella took a lot of thought process. Yeah. Cause I really did not like them at first. Hmm. You know, I was very much like, who are these people? You yeah. know, cause there is that level. They come across sometimes as floozies depending on how you play them. And so after a while I said, you know what, forget it. They're not floozies. They're not floozies. And I can't play them that way because I, I have to, feel as them that the decisions they're making are correct decisions right so I was able to find like the route but it took me a while to kind of like mentally get through with each of them like the why they do what they do so did you rationalize that Zerlina is trying to ascend class-wise rather than it wasn't so much that she was trying to ascend class-wise is that she was um because because I think the reason those those characters are hard is also because it's very hard as a modern day female to understand the um the constraints the stresses and the the inflexibility of the time that those women were living in the fact that they did not have really choices like the, the choices that she had was to marry Mazzetto or what, go to a convent yeah right so all of a sudden she has this third choice which was probably could if it were a real choice would put her in a position to probably take care of her family. You know, who knows? We don't know the rest of the this, this story. So you just build things in to make decisions make sense to yourself. So for me, it was like she was lost in this possibility. And I think that if we really think about people and humans, very few people would just immediately discard something like that if it came their way, whether it was a career opportunity, a life Yeah, you have to investigate it, you know? People investigate it. They just do. It's human nature, I think, to want to be in a better, safer position, right? Hmm. 
And I think if you think of it that way, and you think of her as a woman at that time, being in a safer position, you know, money and stuff like that would have been a safer position for her, right? Yeah. So that's what it was. But I think she, but I think that's why when she is apologizing to him and all of these things, she's very genuine. I think she's very genuine about it. Like she's also a flirt, but that doesn't make her a bad person, yeah. right? And, and I think she also comes to the realization, of course, she, I mean, she loves Mazetto. I mean, there's no question, you know, and that ends up being for her, you know, and it's sort of the same with Dorabella in a way where somebody else comes into the picture. And if you really take it for face value, and if she really takes for face value that those guys have gone off to war and what are the odds that they're coming back? I mean, really for them, people that the odds are really low. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe her mourning period is a lot faster than Ferdelici's. Yeah. And then she's trying to move on, you know, you never know. So I think that's how I, I go through it. Um, because also playing disingenuous, unless the character's truly, that's the character. Um, I don't know, it becomes, it doesn't come across very nice. Yeah. I don't think it's not as interesting. So but we've all seen Zerlina stagings where it's just about sex, you know, mm -hmm. and to me, it's like, oh, come on, this is, there's more to the character than this, you know? Uh, she's not yeah. just like a horny bluesy. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Also, again, I think that's just, yeah, it just makes it sort of boring. Yeah. Because, you know, and also like, why would he pursue her? You know, why would Don Giovanni pursue? I mean, he pursues all the women, right? But yeah. I, I would like to also suspect to make his character more interesting. He enjoys the chase. Right. He enjoys the challenge, clearly. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone for Elvira. You know, he enjoys the challenge. So I think if if Zerlini were just simply like, you know, rolled over, like that's not very exciting. Isabel Leonard from the Santa Fe Opera Festival in between performances in the title role of Carmen. What a get for the OBS season seven finale. Thanks again to Emily Doyle Moore and Eliana O'Brien at Santa Fe Opera for making that possible. And thanks to Oliver for making the trip out to Santa Fe, having a great time, but really capturing some incredible interviews. That man is worth every penny that we pay him. <laughs> this is the sort of stuff you don't want to miss on the OBS. That's why you subscribe Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow Apple Podcasts. Again, you just hit the plus sign. It's true. Season seven comes to an end. Season eight, just around the corner, kicks off with the new academic year. In September, there's been some ups, there's been some downs, there's been some A-list guests for this finale. And certainly over the last few months and weeks. I want to turn to the team. Mm. I'm going to start with Ashley with you. Give us your high point and your low point for season seven of the OBS. You know, for my high point, I, uh, you know, every so often you get a really talented athlete that has an, all sorts of amazing things to offer, but doesn't quite fit in with the team that they have been traded to. Uh, they're not working with the coaching staff. They're not working with the other players. There's just something that's not gelling. And so for us, my high point is us not making a deal with Dallas Opera by the trade deadline. Because here's my point, is that 
this athlete, one of the things that we do really well is we try to help educate our listeners and our audience. And we do a lot of that with audio clips. We were stifled. We couldn't do as much of that. It was great to be a part of the TDO team. And, you know, it was it was a really great experience. But some of the things that made us us, we weren't able to do. Mm. So it's like taking away a signature play from a really great defensive line and expecting them to do other things and hoping, you know, hoping that it works out. And so for us, like the, you know, you've, you've got to have an athlete that's got support from its staff. It's got a good coach. Sometimes those relationships don't work out and those people need to get traded. So we got traded and I think we're going to be back to our roots and all the better for it. So for what some people would be a low became your high. So is what some would consider a high going to be your low? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you're a fan of in opera. My low is every false start we had to deal with with Anna Natremko this season. <laughs> she, you know, when it's like, when we think the progress, like I think of the progress of opera and like it's moving forward as like a track meet or a swim meet. And like everybody's on the blocks. We're ready. We're waiting for everybody to go charging forward. And then that one person goes rogue and like jumps into the pool or falls off the block. And it's like, oh, okay, everybody back. We got to try this again. Anna was our false start. She kept showing up and like mitigating the progress that we've been trying to make in this art form. So I'm tired of hearing about her. She's my low. Weston Williams, give us a high and a low from season seven. Well, I'll, I'll start with a low, too. And it's going to tie in with Ashley's because it is related to the uh, end of our collaboration with the Dallas Opera Network. Um, but I will say that uh, my low specifically, uh, and just to give everyone sort of a peek behind the curtain here, uh, while we were with the Dallas Opera Network, my job was to um, basically record on a Monday night uh, go on uh, and then by Tuesday have an audio version of the show and a video <laughs> version of the show ready to go in the can to be uh, to be reviewed and then sent out there. Um, so uh, our final episode with the, the Dallas Opera Network was, of course, the famous basketball game, which unfortunately, if you listen to the podcast, you have no idea about because the audio would have been unusable just garbage <laughs> just uh, us running around throw you'll you would have heard like various uh, sort of sounds of of balls being thrown over garages and a little uh, bit of panting and uh, yeah. oliver being very smug about getting like the two shots that he got in and then it would have just been a, a real mess auditorially speaking so that was my low that that was the one show the last one that i couldn't get an audio and visual for so i really regret that but my high <laughs> Uh, speaking of uh, things that are unusual, um, Oliver is usually the person who gets us our great interviews, but occasionally uh, George will step in with somebody or Ashley or Matt because all of you guys have such great connections in the industry. You're all professionals. I am basically my my whole qualification for being on this uh, this panel is the fact that I am really good at faking being a music major, um, which I was not <laughs> in college. Uh, so. As a result, I don't have these kinds of connections, but I was on a call with an old college friend of mine who happened to mention that he knew Matthew O'Coin. And uh, I was mm -hmm. like, 
Now is my chance. I can contribute something to the show. Finally, at long last. And I, uh, we went and we hounded his um, his team, and I and I got this yeah. connection through, and we had oh, a great, great interview. You should check it out in our archives. Uh, a great interview with Matthew O'Coin talking about the um, the deep things about his compositional process and what art means to him, what opera means. It's a great conversation, and even though. I didn't actually make it on that conversation. Oliver did a great job following through with my lead. <laughs> so, George, highs and lows, what you got for well, us? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start high as well. I mean, obviously, England making it to the final of Euro 2020, <laughs> beating Germany 2-0 to get there, and then losing just by the... Oh, wait, sorry. Wait, opera? Oh, sorry. Yes. Okay. Sorry. This show. You're on the opera show right now. Yeah, I got my got my my uh, wires crossed there. The I did enjoy the, the Euro 2020 segment. I love the brackets. I love the bracket segments George so much. George loves the bracket. I love the Aida. Um, well, we did the brackets, uh, a multi-show opera bracket in March. Um, we did, we did a March madness thing in, oh, that was for the podcast, uh, in December. <laughs> we did the Aida fantasy football league, which I loved as well. But, but to go back to that Euro 2020, uh, bracket, we did Tony Bereze being the judge. Mm. It was episode 300. Yeah. Will Liverman went inside yeah. the huddle with yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was, that was just, everybody got gold. There was no gold, silver, bronze on that show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to transition. I have a high, I have a middle, and a low. Oh. In transcendences, I uh, am saddened that we don't give out the red cards anymore in the red card segment. We, we, we had to give a red card to the red card segment. Now, the, the good thing is, right, is that, like, everyone's open, and we don't have to punish people for staying open when clearly they shouldn't be. The bad <laughs> thing is that we don't get to punish people. Ah. Uh. Yeah. That was I, that was really That's enjoyable. Truly to tragic. Me. You you masochist. <laughs> the absolute low for me. Weston already mentioned the uh, TDO finale when we played the basketball game. Some losses smart. <laughs> Some losses really hurt. Michigan losing to Ohio State really hurts. Yale losing to Harvard really hurts. Mm. Me losing to Oliver in that basketball game. <laughs> It's rough. It's like it's I, like it's like Bama losing the Iron Bowl. Like it, you can't come back it from just, that. It's like that's the kind of that's the kind of game you circle on the schedule, and you when you lose it, it really really hurts. So one of these days, I'm gonna get a rematch. Such a great season. I'm I'm looking over my notes again. Listen to this. This time, uh, September of last year, Lucas and Arena. Meacham, mm. Charles Castronovo, mm. Kyle oh, Kettleson, Ann Toomey, Daniela Candelari, Jake Heggie. Yes, that one actually happened. <laughs> yep. uh, Joyce L. Curry, um, O'Coin, of course, we talked about. And then the season seven finale. I feel like I'm doing a sort of, you know, like not-for-profit radio show thing. I'm like listing off all the prizes that you get when you <laughs> donate money. But it has been truly a bumper year. And if that means anything... It means you want to stick around for season eight. And right now, you want to stick around for the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. 
The winners of the 2022 Opus Classique Awards have been announced. This year, the Female Singer of the Year went to Lea Desandre for her album Amazone, while the Male Singer of the Year went to Jonas Kaufmann for his Liszt Freudvoll und Leitvoll album. The Conductor of the Year is Vladimir Jurovsky for Strauss's Eine Alpelsymphony, while the Young Talent of the Year went to Aeneas Hum for Embrace and Penny Pate for his eponymous album. The Metropolitan Opera has announced a new COVID-19 policy. The company says that audience members will no longer be required to show proof of vaccination to attend a performance or event. However, while inside the Opera House, everyone is required to wear a properly fitting mask. The Sound of Identity is a film set to be released in the UK following its US debut. The documentary about friend of the show, Lucia Lucas, follows the transgender opera singer and her history-making performance in the lead role of Mozart's Don Giovanni. After the San Antonio Symphony closed its doors in June, the musicians of the orchestra have announced the formation of the San Antonio Philharmonic. In a statement, the new organization said, quote, When the San Antonio Symphony management ceased operations, the musicians, some of whom had won their seats in the 70s and 80s, were determined to preserve world-class music in San Antonio. With their formation of the San Antonio Philharmonic, we all have an historic opportunity to reinvent what an orchestra in the 21st century can be. The largest political donation in U.S. history has operatic ties. According to the New York Times, secretive business tycoon Barry Side donated 100% of the shares of his electronics manufacturing company to the conservative political action committee Marble Trust. Marble Trust then immediately sold the company for $1.65 billion. What the Times didn't report is that Barry Side is also the founder and, according to current records, secretary-treasurer of Chamber Opera Chicago, which he created in the early 1980s with his wife, Barbara Landis Side. Crunching the numbers, live performance is back, but audiences have been slow to return, says the New York Times. Fewer than half as many people saw a Broadway show during the season that recently ended than did so during the last full season before the pandemic. The Met saw its paid attendance fall to 61% of capacity, down from 75% before COVID. And many regional theaters say ticket sales are down significantly too. In trade news, Theater Bremen has announced that Stefan Kingler will be its new music director and chief conductor. In a statement, the conductor said, I am looking forward to many scenic and musically touching performances in the next years, to which I invite the wonderful Bremen audience. For me, the theater is the perfect place to share stories, to question, and enjoy life together. Exit stage right, mezzo-soprano Michelle Walton. Walton was a company principal with Scottish Opera in the late 1990s, appearing in many roles in the repertoire, including Dorabella in Cosi Fan Tutte. And on this day, August 29th, 1720, the first performance of Handel's Oratorio Esther. 1868, the birth of French oboist and composer Georges Longy. He uh, played in the Boston Symphony and also established the music school in Cambridge, Mass. 1890, birth of Chilean composer Adolfo Allende Saron. And in 1952, it's the first performance of John Cage's 4 minutes, 33 seconds. And that is your two-minute drill.
And that tasty tidbit that you were just treated to was of John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds, a very pivotal, memorable performance from the BBC Symphony Orchestra <laughs> in 2010. My favorite thing online is to like uh, go to YouTube videos. It's like heavy metal cover of John Cage's 433 oh, and it was like hit the, hit the, hit the sticks and then nothing. <laughs> Those jokes, jokes are too easy, man. All right, let, let's let's. We don't have a ton of time. Let's unpack the the super PAC donation and the ties mm. to the Chicago art scene. This is an unusual story, Ashley. There, there's a lot to unpack in the story. I'm just going to try to give you the highlights. So there's an article that came out last week uh, with the New York Times, uh, the Lender, and I believe ProPublica. So they are talking about how there was this. At the end of last year, a $1.6 billion, which is the largest political donation to any organization ever. in U.S. history, yeah. ever, ever, ever. And it went to this conservative political action committee called Marble Trust. It was actually headed by a guy named Leonard Leo, who is a co-chair of the Federalist Society. Ugh. He's often considered like the architect of Trump's Supreme Court. This guy is a big player. But the way that this happened is basically this guy, this secretive businessman here in Chicago, this guy named Barry Side, donated all of his shares of one of his companies, because he has a few, to this guy. This guy turned around and sold it to another company in, I think, Ireland for $1.6 billion. So that's how it becomes like the biggest contribution in political history. Mm -hmm. So what everybody's reporting on is that he is this secretive Chicago businessman. But of course, when I saw it, I was like, wait a minute. I know that guy. No, literally, I know that guy. I know him. I know his wife. My jaw hit the floor. I hit the fetal position for a minute. Yeah. And the reason I know this guy I don't have a ton of one percenter friends, but and yeah, so basically this guy founded in the early 80s this company called Chamber Opera Chicago with his wife, Barbara Landis, who is a mezzo-soprano. Uh, she often is the one of the principals in the roles sorry, one of the principals in this company. I'm getting tongue-tied because I'm getting so worked up about this because everybody's talking about this big money. Nobody's talking about how he is this huge patron of the arts in the Midwest, in the Chicagoland area. His wife was on the board of a number of arts organizations. They founded this opera company that has frankly operated at a loss for a very long time. If you look at the 990s, they they have not turned a profit in this company since 2014. Is it a tax shelter? Who can say? They did <laughs> give this company a million dollars in 2019 right before the pandemic started. So they've been known uh, in Chicago, they used to do uh, a, a production of a mall in the night visitors every year they've gotten to where they do this jane austen musical and they often take it in tours of the uk what it means for the chicago art scene is that i think some people knew about barry side's political leanings uh he's definitely part of the dust up in the anton and scalia law school renaming mm -hmm. uh the thing at george mason uh so so i think some people knew about this but the more this story gets out in Chicago, the more people who may not agree with that type of donation, who may also be taking paychecks from his operatic organization, because they employ a lot of singers, or at least used to employ a lot of singers pre-pandemic in the Chicagoland area. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a sticky wicket, because a lot of artists tend to lean not in the direction that that money is going. Right. Well, when and when you look at the Chamber Opera Chicago side of it, you know, just from their website, uh, the uh, next performances of a Mall in the Night Visitors, uh, based on the website, are um, November 30th, 2019. 
<laughs> so, right. it, so it's like I, I just I want to imagine kind of the, the dinner table conversations between Barry and Barbara and Barbara's like hey look you know would you be interested in, in you know donating to Chamber Opera Chicago darling <laughs> well <laughs> I mean their dinner money. table like, well you know what let me talk to my accountant in the Cayman Islands and see what's possible <laughs> I mean, board meetings for this company are basically their dinner table because yeah. they both yeah. she's I'm she's bogus. president. He's technically listed as secretary treasurer. But I mean, the nine, 90s, which you can I mean, they're public yeah, information. Public you can look up any company yeah. and their tax filings by year. So in 2020, which is the last year that's reported, the total expenses for the company are just over a million dollars, a million eighty six thousand seven eighty four total revenue for the company revenue. They made money in 2020, $945,000. So already, again, they're operating at a loss. The last time they officially turned a profit per the 990s was 2014. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, so you're, you're going to hear about this political donation, but know that this guy is an opera fan and he, in fact, runs a company here in the city of Chicago. And if we can kick them out, that'd be just great with me. This is the this is part of the thing that I was saying like last week, right? Uh, um, this the, the ideological gulf between the wealthy people who fund the opera and the artists who are struggling to make ends meet all the time is so so wide. And to like be hell, I, I feel like often any arts organization has come across a point at some point in time where they have felt held hostage by people who are really just want to donate for I mean who knows they might actually be fans who knows but like so much of the time it's for that tax write off it's so that they can seem right. impressive it's for their social standing uh th this is the kind of thing that we should be pushing back against trying to find other ways to fund our arts organizations lobbying for government funding uh, or just local fundraising or or whatever it is this is the kind of thing we need to get away from uh so we so opera isn't attached to one of the most massive conservative uh right. donations of all time yeah. you know counterpoint yeah. mm. uh <laughs> this is uh there are often people i agree with you uh that give these donations so that they look impressive or they look cultured right, right sure these folks the sides legitimately are fans of the art form and legitimately love the art form you know when it comes to their politics i certainly disagree with them believe whatever you want feel however you want about the ways in which this country should be run. But these are folks that are true fans of the art form. So if they're not there to make these paychecks and these donations, who's going to come behind them? I, I agree, but I'm also a little more realistic and like, well, they they pay a lot of artists in this area. Well, right. I they mean, pay... They or, pay an or entire did. orchestra. Or they did. pay singers. Yes, or did. Yeah. Uh, so, and I know a lot of singers in this community that are very loyal to that company right. because they pay so well. They pay better than most of the other companies around. Why? Because they have these deep pockets from these legitimate opera fans. I recognize that me bringing this counterpoint up looks like I'm, you know, more in support of them than I might be. But, <laughs> you know, just in looking at the way that shows get put together and shows run, these things cost money. Who's going to bring the money? It requires a, a deep systemic change. And honestly, like, you know, from my point of view, if there if I can ever like make uh, a wealthy conservative far right figure uh, uncomfortable in an art form that I love, that's a good day for me. 
The other side of crunching the numbers, of course, was the live performances back, but audiences are slow to return. Met attendance down to 61% of capacity, uh, down from 75% before Doing the better than Broadway. <laughs> Peter, Peter, Gelb, Peter Gelb said in the Times, quote, I believe the, our audience is there. Just some of them are in hibernation, to which I would have supplied, why do you think they're asleep, Peter? <laughs> what, what, what are you putting on the stage of the net that is keeping them awake? And if you might want to think about, also that. about what that is. You got to get rid of the Zeffirelli Productions is what we're saying. Really, really need to. He did absolutely the right things with um, the Trepco, of course. Strangely, the only show making money on Broadway right now, according to the Times, is the, the musical version of Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. It's yep. pretty good. I saw it. Direct, I enjoyed directed, it. Directed by my dear friend from college, Alex Timbers. So Aw, drink. Man, the man's a genius. I'm so glad he's making money. Let's wrap up season seven. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Oh, my goodness. September to August. What a fantastic year it has been with you two, with Matt Cummings and Oliver Camacho. The OBS keeps on churning out dare i say this show is the only show in america that is on every single week this is why we are america's talk radio show about opera no one else i don't think anyone else in the world does a show every single week about opera if you are with us we are glad you are here. We want you to stay here, and we want you to spread the word. Good call, bad call is how we wrap up every show. It's how we're going to wrap up this season. Weston Williams. Well, uh, I just wanted to agree with everything you said, George, but I, my good call was actually being off next week for Labor Day. So <laughs> uh, we don't have to dwell on that, though. You can go to, go to, go to Ashley. <laughs> Ashley Hargrave. I mean, officially, my good call is working with all of you fine fellas because you guys are pretty great. And you, our listeners, thank you, as always. See you in season eight. But my other good call is the song of the summer, which is (laughs) It's Corn. Are you familiar with It's Corn? Oh, yeah. It has the juice. It, oh yes, knobs on. Oh my god, it's so good. So there's a there's a social media account called Recess Therapy where this guy interviews children, and it's always wonderful, and it warms your heart. And there is a little boy named Tariq who is interviewed about corn, and he talks about how much he loves corn. And I agree with everything he says. He is my new leader. I will follow Tariq anywhere. And the group, the Gregory Brothers, has written based on, you know, those sound bites of little Tariq, a song called It's Corn. And it is a straight up bop. The thing is lit. It is the song of the summer. I will die on this hill. <laughs> High school football has started in Chicago as of last weekend. I went to a my local high school's home opener i'm standing in line to get my ticket and i start talking to the the man in front of me who turns out he's a pianist but not just a pianist but a uh repetiteur vocal coach opera accompanist turns out his son is playing on the high school football team about to see Mm. he meanwhile back in the day went to music school with sandra Radvodovsky and <gasps> Angela Georgiou. Oh my god. That's our connection. Sandra next uh, next year. He he was like, "Oh yeah, every time Sandra comes to Chicago, I hang out with her." 
<laughs> I was like, would you like to take my have cards? You, have you told Matt yet this yet? Because he's going to lose his mind. Matt's head is going to explode. <laughs> Stick around for season eight. Maybe I'll be the first thing that happens. You'll that be able to it. hear Matt's head explode live. <laughs> for this week's edition and for season seven of America's Talk radio show about opera, our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com and we are grateful to him. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. If you're not already Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Get your voice heard. Email us. Get your words heard. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that merch. Beer Coaster, lapel pen. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor. Well, when we had video, he did video. <laughs> Weston Williams. Your co-hosts are Ashley Hardgrave and Matt Cummings. For our guests, Ryan Speedo Green and Isabel Leonard, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while donating dark money to the boogeyman. We are off <laughs> next week as we celebrate Labor Day here in the US of A. And then September 15th, home opener, season eight of the OBS. More opera headlines, more hot takes, and more corn. It has the juice. <laughs> Join us. <laughs>